This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do, as we're here with brand new episodes every Thursday. This week, we're tracing the story of a historic heist. But it's not the one from the 1660s involving the Crown Jewels and the Tower of London that some people might recognise. No, this one dates back more than 700 years to 1303 and the reign of King Edward I in unlikely surroundings. And helping us piece together the story are Head Properties Curator for English Heritage, Dr Jeremy Ashby, and Medieval Historian, Dr Sally Dixon-Smith. Hello. Hello, Charles. Nice to be with you. Thank you both for coming on. Let's set the crime scene. First question for Jeremy. Where is the scene of this crime, please? Okay, well, it's an unlikely answer because what we're talking about is the burglary of a royal treasury. The royal treasury is in the unlikely surroundings of Westminster Abbey. So just to sort of explain what that looks like for anyone who doesn't know London very well, Westminster is now a part of the city of Greater London. But once upon a time and in the Middle Ages, it actually would have been almost like a separate village. It would have been separate from London, a little bit to the west of it. And it wasn't a large place, but it had two absolutely whopping complexes of buildings in it, one of which immediately on the bank of the River Thames, at a point when the River Thames is flowing from south to north, is the Palace of Westminster. And that's now the site occupied by the Houses of Parliament. It's a 19th century building, but It has been a palace much, much longer since the 11th century. And that building, the Palace of Westminster, was was on the riverbank at that time. Then if you walk a little bit westwards, so away from the river, you come to a quite low stone wall where there's now a road running along. But on the other side of that would have been the Monk's Cemetery. And then to the west of the Monk's Cemetery, absolutely huge buildings, as big as the palace, the buildings of Westminster Abbey, which, as anyone who saw the coronation of King Charles III on the telly, it's still substantially the medieval building that's there. And it's absolutely huge. It's one of the largest churches and monasteries of the Benedictine order in Europe, actually, certainly one of the biggest in England. And it was from Westminster Abbey that our burglary took place in the year 1303. Okay, and what time of year are we talking about in 1303? Well, like quite a lot of crimes, this one, the criminals were playing the long game. So it's actually something that takes quite a long time. The theft comes out and the investigation is taking place during the summer of 1303 from June onwards. So we're talking about long days and short nights, warm evenings and so on. But actually what they found was that the burglary had been a long time in planning and had taken about six months earlier in that year. So it actually had started in the depths of winter and had gone right the way through the spring. Interesting. Okay. Plot's starting to thicken here. Sally, what kind of valuables did King Edward I have stored at Westminster Abbey? He really had a huge variety of things stored in this treasury. I mean, as Jeremy was saying, it's a weird thing that it's in Westminster Abbey and not, as you would think, across the road. Well, across the wall as it was then in Westminster Palace. But we have various lists of the types of things that Edward I put in the treasury, in the Royal Treasury in Westminster Abbey. So for instance, in 1297, there's a list that tells you there are a whole load of crowns in there. 
it says one great golden crown with precious stones worth £4,000, which is an absolutely immense amount of money. To put it in context, if you're a soldier fighting for Edward I, you would earn tuppence a day. <laughs> um, so £4,000 is an absolutely ginormous sum. There's another crown of gold with precious stones that's worth £200. A beautiful gold crown with rubies and emeralds worth £250. One gold crown worth £100. One gold crown with emeralds and sapphires and rubies worth 100 marks. And then all sorts of other jewels and all sorts of things. So there's definitely a big emphasis on crowns and jewels, but also all sorts of other things. So other lists also show us not just all that sort of bling, if you like, but things that were also very valuable, like books, for instance, a manuscript of choral music that was in there, a painting, a Mappa Mundi, so a painting of the world as it was known then, and also things like, you know, cash money. And of course, money in 1303 was actually made out of silver or gold. So coinage, basically. Coinage. So there's plenty in there that you might want to steal, frankly. And you described one of the crowns as being valued in marks. Yes. So it's another unit. It's used in England as well. It's two thirds of a pound. And ah. this is a, and this is a time when things are done by weight as well. So there's a kind of a pound is a pound in weight as well. A pound's worth of silver is a pound weight of silver that's being you know, bashed into 240 pennies. Well, more than bashed, it was a bit more sophisticated Minted. than that. <laughs> but marks is used as another way of sort of counting money, but it's not actually a coin. Very interesting. What's the value after inflation up until these days, would you say? One sort of rule of thumb is times it by a thousand. But that's a very rough rule of thumb. Yeah, I always like like ducking questions of that because because their values are completely different. So, for example, land for us or property is incredibly expensive. For them, rent is, you know, it's not actually such such a big deal. But I would say this, wouldn't I? I always fall back on that well-known universal value of, of money, which is how much does it cost to build a castle? And the one I always sort of go for for this, and it's going to come up again, so get ready for it, everyone, is around this sort of time, Edward I is building a very big, very flashy castle in North Wales called Beomaris Castle. And Beomaris Castle, if they'd completed the whole thing, would have cost £15,000. Now, you know, we are going to be talking about some fairly eye-watering sums of yeah. money. But when you think about you know, something that costs £400, that's going to be a workforce of several thousand people building and materials, building a big castle over the course of several months. It is a fairly disgustingly obscene amount of money to be vested in a single object. And I think when you suddenly think about a whole storeroom of boxes that are full of stuff of this kind, of which yeah. individual items cost that much, you actually are talking about wealth that is beyond the imagination of most people in this country at that time. Mm. Yes. Hyper wealth, if that's even a word. No, it's very beyond much so, billions, it? isn't it? Really? Yeah. So some people might be thinking, why was the king storing valuables in a monastery? From my initial reaction, it's kind of like, well, he trusted the monks too well. But what's your response, Jeremy? 
Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. I mean, I'll jump in on this because I think it is a very odd story. I think, though, that in the Middle Ages, it probably wouldn't have seemed quite as weird as it does for us. This is a time when, actually in churches all the way across the land, valuables are being kept in chests. Mm. Documents are being kept because the people, the churchmen are some of the, the only people in some communities who are able to read or write, you know, if there are documents around. So I think that's some of it. And of course, you know, as you've said, you would sort of imagine that a place that's dedicated to the worship of God and staffed by people that are dedicated to that same service would actually be, you know, trustworthy and that robbery or some other crime on holy ground is a sacrilege. That is certainly true. But I think what's also just worth saying is that even in the realms of the high politics of people like, you know, the kings of England, a practice had drawn up in which monasteries had become fairly established as natural places for this to happen. So Edward I's father, King Henry III, for example, and in fact, as a young man, Edward himself, they'd used the monastery of the Knights Templar in London, the New Temple, as their principal royal treasury. And the Knights Templar were pretty well bankers to the crown. So there is a precedent for this kind of thing. And when Edward I goes to war in North Wales, for example, you know, his whole logistical corps that follows after him, which is an institution called the Royal Wardrobe, and much of what we're going to be talking about today is the operation of the Royal Royal Wardrobe. They famously stationed themselves in a local monastery at Aberconwy, and, you know, all the goods that they were carrying were taken into the monastery for storage. So it's the kind of thing that happens quite a lot. But I should say that Westminster Abbey had a couple of other advantages which made it a very good place for this. Firstly, and Sally can talk about this more than I can, there was already sensitive material there, the regalia, which were regarded as the relics of St. Edward the Confessor, whose shrine is in Westminster Abbey. And I hope Sally will be able to talk about that in a minute, because actually the whole question of whether this treasury contains the crown jewels Mm -hmm. is something that needs a bit of unpicking. And the other thing we've already mentioned is right next to the Palace of Westminster, which is the principal royal residence. It's where the law courts are. It's where the administrators of the exchequer, the, the royal treasury are. So in that context, it's a handy place for treasure to be kept. Things like silver and gold plates and cups, even crowns, they can be kept safely. But actually, if the king or the court needs them over the road in the Palace of Westminster, then they can be got out relatively easily and got over there. So I think that hopefully explains some of the oddity of using this not very fortified place actually as the royal treasury. It's almost like a prop store for a theatre company. (laughs) Well, interesting you should say that. And I think, you know, what I always imagine with some of these treasuries is actually it's it's a very precious but not very well ordered junk room. There's all sorts of, you know, strange things in, as Sally was mentioning, all, as far as we can tell, put together quite haphazardly in boxes so Mm -hmm. that one of these incredibly expensive crowns will be next to a a relic of the true cross, which will be next to, as Sally said, you know, a manuscript with choral music in it, that kind of thing. They're all put in together. Hmm. And let's talk about this idea of the crown jewels aspect. Is this how we would understand these items in the context of the time, Sally? So it would seem obvious because Westminster Abbey then was the coronation church, just as it is today. And Jeremy said about the coronation of Charles III earlier this year in Westminster Abbey, that that's where you would keep crowns. Now, there was one set of crowns that were, as Jeremy was saying, 
relics of the shrine of Edward the Confessor. So these were, if they weren't really so, were definitely believed to be, and there's no reason why there shouldn't be, the real Anglo-Saxon crowns that had belonged to Edward the Confessor, who died in 1066, kicking off the massive tussle, well, more than a tussle, over who was going to be the next King of England and leading to the Norman Conquest. So this idea that these are really ancient objects, and because Edward the Confessor, that particular king, about 100 years after he died, was canonised as a saint, these are relics of the abbey and kept by his shrine. And so although these objects are used in the coronation, they are only used then. If you're a king, you only get to wear it when you are crowned king in the coronation. You don't get to wear it any other point in your reign. And so these items have to be returned. So if you're a king and you want to wear a crown out of the abbey after the coronation, when you're going across to the Palace of Westminster for the massive coronation banquet, you have to have another crown. If you want a sort of lighter crown that you wear more day to day on different occasions, you need to have another crown. And so this is why we've got these sort of multiple crowns. There's sort of one set of regalia, regalia being the objects that make you look royal. In other words, crowns, scepters, the coronation robes, that is part and parcel of what belongs to the Abbey and shouldn't go anywhere else. And then you've got sort of lots of different copies made for different people, if you like, and reused and readjusted that are used during the reign. And also at this time, and this Edward I did this himself, as his father and his grandfather had done. If you're a king, when you die, you are actually buried with regalia as well. So you're buried with a crown, with two scepters and with coronation robes on. So you've got this kind of multiplying and decreasing collection of objects that are there as they are needed. And in terms of what um, Jeremy was saying about the wardrobe, it's kind of, it can provide everything. There are lots, it starts getting more specialised, but it can provide everything from the things you need to make wars. So, you know, bows and arrows and all that sort of stuff to fantastic gold work. And I think the way to understand it is that the wardrobe is a department of the royal household that provides everything that a king needs to be a king. You were saying about it being sort of stage dressing. It's, it is the props department, but it's more than that. It's everything that you need to go around being a proper ruler, whether that's making war or appearing you know, in amazing robes and wearing a crown. And because the king at this time moves around a huge amount, it also means that the wardrobe that's providing all this stuff has to have sort of multiple places that it can stash things securely. So when it's traveling around with the king and you've got one of these amazing crowns, say, with you, you need somewhere secure to put it overnight or, or, you know, when you're traveling. And so the wardrobe kind of operates also, or the treasuries of the wardrobe operates almost, if I could put it like this, like a multi-site lending library. So sort of things are checked in and out according to where the king is and what he needs. So this is also where it can become quite confusing about where things are kept because it's not necessarily straightforward. And it makes sense in terms of understanding that the king's moving around and, and the king and queen and his children 
and their children are moving around and need different things in different places. But it, you can imagine that it's it's quite complicated for the people in charge of keeping track of all this stuff and also for historians looking at those records mm. to work out what's where, when and why. And so coming back to the question of are these the crown jewels, they are part of the crown jewels, let's put it that way. The things that we used solely at the coronation stay in the abbey, or at least the crown stays in the abbey. Weirdly, at this time, they do let the scepter and rod of Edward the Confessor out and across the way for the coronation banquet, but it has to be brought back straight away. But the king can't take Edward's crown out of the abbey. So you have to have all these other sets. So there are plenty of things that are in these stores of the wardrobe that are used at coronations, but also things that are used throughout the reign. So a really wide-ranging kind of wardrobe for the office of His Majesty, effectively, including some other items as well, some bric-a-brac. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And a lot of it. That's the other thing. It's a, there's huge quantities of this. Now, something I probably need to pick up on for everybody listening, if they're not too familiar with this part of history, is that, Sally, you've mentioned Edward the Confessor, who famously set up this, as you described, tussle between Harold and William at the Battle of Hastings, which uh, William the Conqueror won. Edward the Confessor and Edward I, obviously two different Edwards, but Edward I is still called Edward I, even though he's around a lot later than Edward the yes. Confessor. So why is Edward the Confessor not called Edward I, who dies in 1066? Good question to which there's not a particularly great answer. I think it's a, a difference between how historians refer to them. It's a difference between how kings refer to themselves at the time. But I think it's worth noting that Edward I is actually, although he's what, 250 years later we're talking about, after the death of Edward the Confessor, Edward I is named after Edward the Confessor because Edward I's father was a huge adherent of the cult of Edward the Confessor. He was really inspired by this royal saint. He thought he was wonderful. And Henry III, Edward I's father, for this reason, starts rebuilding Westminster Abbey in the way that we see see it today. And so whereas Henry III, you know, his father was called John, his uncle was called Richard, his grandfather was called Henry, obviously the Williams, he then calls his son this weird Anglo-Saxon name, Edward, which was not sort of popular or common no, it'd, at the it'd time. Be like, it'd be like calling him Egfrith or you yes. know, you know, something else. It would be very outlandish. Yeah, um, very strange uh, at the time. I mean, obviously Edward was known this the name of the saint but it's like yeah it's like calling your kid Ethelwolf or, yeah. <laughs> or you know you're having having a daughter called Ailgafu or something i mean it's really quite strange and it shows the importance to edward the first father anyway of this link between his part of the royal family now and the anglo-saxon dynasty which ended in 1066 so let's talk about the items. And can you draw us a picture in our minds, Jeremy, of whereabouts these objects would have been kept within the Abbey? Yes, I can. And this is actually a very difficult story. And this is years ago, but this is where I got first, first got interested in it, because actually a couple of English heritage properties are involved. We know that there were two rooms that were used as treasuries. 
both of them actually putting the monks to a certain amount of inconvenience. I think they would rather that the treasury was somewhere else. And both of them are in the same general part of the site. They're on the eastern side of the cloister. So the cloister, that's the quadrangular courtyard on the south side of the abbey church and that's got the buildings for the monks the refectory and the dormitory and all those kind of things grouped around it as all monasteries are on the eastern side of the courtyard in particular there was the dormitory on the first floor and next to that was the chapter house the chapter house had been completely rebuilt by king henry the third as sally was said it's one of the first acts that he has in the whole rebuilding of westminster abbey the chapter house was a very fine octagonal chamber and it's actually under the management of english heritage so english heritage members can ask the vergers on duty if they can go and see it the treasury itself was though in a bit that's not open to the public the basement underneath the chapter house the chapter house was on an upper floor That's the room that the monks met in every day to have a meeting and to hear a recitation of the chapter of the rule of St. Benedict by which they lived. And that's where its name comes from. But it's in the very dark space underneath it that part of the treasury was kept. And you got into that in a very curious way. You actually had to go through a, a quite inconspicuous door inside the Abbey Church in the south transept. It's the part of the church that's now called Poet's Corner. There's this door that really doesn't draw much attention to itself that takes you in a long, dark passage downwards through the thickness of the wall. And eventually you emerge in a space that was you know, with very thick walls, very small windows and a big central column holding up the vaulted roof. That was part of the treasury. The other bit was actually geographically next to it, but you got into it actually from the cloister itself. That was part of the basement underneath the monk's dormitory and it was a very old part of the site it's actually built in the 11th century soon after the norman conquest and so it's got romanesque architecture it's got round arches and again it's got pillars holding up a vaulted roof and that part of the site has this very unusual name the pyx chamber pyx p-y-x which is actually a medieval name for a box it's actually often it's the box that you would keep the wafer of the the bread of the mass actually in it. But it also, other boxes have more specific uses. And uh, the Pix chamber is is so named because of a later tradition of this strange thing called the trial of the Pix. They they would actually use, I can't remember exactly how it worked, and Sally may remember this, but it's something quite important for assaying whether coinage is actually of the right kind of you know, purity as this. And anyway, there's a historical association with this room, the Pix Chamber, which was certainly also part of the Royal Treasury. Now, that said where it is, I also really ought to say a little bit about when, because the Royal Treasury wasn't there right from the very construction of the Abbey. But it does seem that fairly soon after Henry III's reconstruction of the Abbey had got quite a long way, you get some hints in documents that royal clerks are now coming into the abbey and the best reason for that is that actually they're coming in on business because there's something important they've got to do there that seems to start in the 1260s there's a complaint about it in 1268 for example and i think the likelihood is that some of the royal treasury had started to move into the chapter house basement and the pix chamber from that time onwards we certainly have got a lot of documentation 
much in the last decade of the 13th century. So in 1290 to 1291, someone is making a tiled floor for, and I quote, the treasury of the king's wardrobe under the chapter house of Westminster, which kind of demonstrates that, that proves that that was part of the treasury. But we also get a quite a lot more references to treasures through that whole decade. And I think the description of crowns that Sally read out earlier. I think that was also from the 1290s. And I'm yes. pretty certain that what that is, is actually describing the pig's chamber, the room that's immediately off the cloister walkway. Right. So it's summer 1303. And we think these items were stolen from this pig's chamber, do we? Is that right? I do, though the chapter house basement is also possible. And I'll explain a little bit more yeah. about why I think that for a moment. But they're both their spaces next to one another. They've both got very thick walls, very small windows, and they're both part of the Abbey complex. And what is significant about what else is taking place at the time of this theft in summer 1303, Sally? So it's kind of a good time for a heist, potentially, <laughs> because the king is most definitely out of town. He's pursuing his wars in Scotland. This has been going on for some years. And so Jeremy was describing how you've got Westminster Abbey and then right next to it was sort of with a wall in between, but there are gates in between the two, Westminster Palace and Westminster Palace being, you know, one of the favourite residences where the court would be, where courts of law were held. Because Edward I is fighting in Scotland, he actually moves all these things like the Exchequer and the main court law courts and the Chancery, that is to say, the writing office of the Royal Writing Office to York so that it's nearer for communications to Scotland. So for about, I think it's about four years prior to 1303 and prior to this robbery, the character of Westminster has changed in that the palace that would normally be this hugely bustling place, and as Jeremy said, with clerks from the royal household, nipping in and out of Westminster Abbey as well on business, is suddenly a lot, lot quieter. And it seems also that people are kind of taking advantage of this to probably use the spaces in ways they shouldn't and sort of have parties with their mates and things like that. And so if you're going to do it, it's quite a good time to do it because the king is not on the spot and the place is relatively deserted, or at least the palace is. But there's actually important bits of high politics in this because Ephra the First is that's right, he's not there because he's got other important stuff mm. to be going on. And at the time of our actual robbery, we know he's fighting in Scotland at Linlithgow. And this is the famous war against William Wallace. And yeah. famously, Edward I was not completely successful in this. It was a very, very hard fought war, that one. He actually hadn't quite finished fighting no. in Wales. I mean, he'd sort of the, the conquest of Wales had been more successful. And added to all of that, in 1296, he also goes to war against the French. So the king is militarily very, very overstretched, and fighting wars is expensive. So actually, these treasuries, there's actually probably quite a lot of stuff going out of them around yeah. that sort of time. Because as we say, and one of the things they're keeping there is cash. And you've got to have you know, hard cash in order, order to pay your, your soldiers and, and other people of that kind. So while in some ways, yes, there was a sort of power vacuum and it was possible to put 
mm. royal palaces to to improper uses, as we shall be hearing in a minute. In other ways, it wasn't a brilliant time to do it because actually, if they'd gone a few years earlier, the treasury would have been a bit <laughs> more full. There yes. would have been more stuff there <laughs> for the thieves to get their dirty hands on. But we'll explain a bit more about that in a minute. How does the king find out that his property had been stolen and how much of it was taken as well, Jeremy? Well, some of this we don't know. The best bit of information that we have is a letter from Edward I written on the 6th of June, 1303. And he writes, We have heard from the testimony of trusted men that certain malefactors and disturbers of our peace have by force of arms broken into our treasury within Westminster Abbey and have seized and carried off a large part of our treasure found in the said treasury and committed other enormities against us there to our manifest contempt, to our inestimable harm, and against our peace. Okay, yeah, this is not a king in a, in a good... This is Edward <laughs> I here, who has a reputation for pretty nasty things happening to people who displease him. So this, this is, is not good. I'm ducking your question, Charles. How did the king find out about it? Because we actually just don't know. We first hear about all of this when Edward I already knows. And all he said is the testimony of trusted men. Now, someone was aware of the robbery and had tipped the king off. And the suspicion must be in the circumstances that I think it might be one of the monks of Westminster who knew about this. We'll come back to it. But going on a bit, what Edward I then says, and I'll just sort of summarise this, is he instructs his, his servants to sort things out. And one of the first things that needs to be sorted out is someone trustworthy needs to go and make an inspection of the treasury. That unhappy task falls to a man called John of Droxford or Drockensford, who is the keeper of the wardrobe. He's the man in charge of that household department that, as Sally talked about, is responsible for the royal stuff. It's the things that the king needs to look like a king. So John of Droxford is instructed by Edward I to go and make an inspection, and he does that on the 20th of June. And he writes a description of this, which is actually very interesting, which I'm going to read out now. On the 20th of June, he was given the keys of the said treasury in a canvas pouch with its seal intact and unbroken by Walter of Bedwin, cofferer of the wardrobe of the said king, who, on the king's order, was carrying the said keys with him. And in the presence of, and then there's a list of names, John of Droxford took the intact seal of the pouch, took out the keys, opened the doors of the said wardrobe, and with these others entered the wardrobe. Once inside, he found that the treasury had been broken into, chests and coffers had been destroyed, and many of the goods secretly carried off. So I'll just pause for a minute. The door hadn't been broken into, and the lock was still intact. It still worked with the key. And more than that, the key which wasn't kept in the abbey. It was actually kept by the cofferer of the wardrobe, who is a, an official who has to keep the key in his person, carries the key around in a canvas bag with a wax seal on the front. So if you want to take the key out, you've got to break the seal to do it. And the seal was still intact. So this is sort of like a system of dual control in there. Mm -hmm. The people at the abbey haven't got the key. That's with someone who's mostly going to be in the Palace of Westminster across the way. So that's kind of interesting. And while it isn't said, what I think they have found as John of Droxford came in was that the burglar or burglars hadn't got in through the door. They'd actually managed to make a hole, get this, in the wall 
on the other side of the room. That's the back wall of the Pix Chamber, the wall that is actually sort of fronting onto the monk's cemetery that lay between the Palace of Westminster and the buildings of Westminster Abbey. So, okay, it, it, it's, it's starting to get a bit clearer, but it's also raising a whole load of questions as to who we're talking mm. about, how they did it, and what they're involved in. The other thing that you just asked is how much had been taken. And the stolen property is estimated, and this is given in the commission of Euer and Termina. That's the technical word for basically the commission sent from the authority of the king to various officers to try the people that are guilty when they find them. The stolen property is estimated as £100,000. That is a truly insane amount of money. Just to come back to my previous comparison, as I say, to build the ridiculously expensive Beaumaris Castle was £15,000. To build all of the new castles of North Wales over 50 years only added up to £73,000. So £100,000 is, is truly astronomical. It's completely outside the experience of anyone who would be you know, involved in any of this. Absolutely. Astonishing. It's an sort of, yeah. unthinkable amount of wealth. And also from John of Droxford's inventory, I think you also get a picture of the kind of chaos they find in there because there's one note on it that says that they haven't bothered to make a list of all the relics that have been left behind because basically they've been spread about all around the room. You can imagine the robber or robbers has been rummaging through various things and going, oh, you know, bones of a saint, I'm not going to get much money for those. And so they have to kind of pack them up just in a bag saying they're sort of unknown relics because they can't pick them apart anymore. So I think it's, it's sort of, you get this idea that the place has really been ransacked. Wow, yeah. I think people are getting that image in their heads, definitely. And another thing that they're probably wondering, which I am as well, is the King's letter states that there was force of arms. So how does he know, writing from Scotland, that there was sort of weapons involved in this heist? I wouldn't read too much into that because Viet Armis is just, which is the, the word that's sort of used for this, it's, it's a topos. It appears in all sorts of Roman literature and it basically just means with violence. Now, that's not necessarily violence against the person. That could be they had cut their way in through the wall or something else of, you know, of that kind. I think that that's probably yeah. what that means. I don't think that actually there had been any fighting involved. And I don't think I've read anyone ever no. saying that actually that, that was the case in, in this burglary. It's more like force. Yeah. Yeah. So a forced entry. Forced yeah. entry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, to the average person at the time in London, would people have known about this burglary? Obviously, it's doing the rounds in royal circles, and probably people at the Palace of Westminster know, and at Westminster Abbey. Did normal people know about this at the time? The hope is on the part of the king that yes, they do, because the commission of inquiry that he sets up with this rather cheesed off letter for of the 6th of June. The whole point is that what they're going to do is set up local juries from all the 24 wards of the City of London and the County of Middlesex and the County of Surrey. And these are juries, they could be 12 or 24 men who are sworn in, who are supposed to tell the justices anything that they know about the burglary. So the hope is that, yes, there is information out there because that's the way that the king is going to get to the bottom of this. And in his um, letter, 
The king also sets out precisely the questions that the justices are supposed to ask these juries. Firstly, who were the wrongdoers? Who knew about the robbery? Who helped or assisted the robbers or advised them? Who knowingly received the stolen treasure? How was the treasure taken out and how much of it? And where is the treasure now? (laughs) So there is this list of questions that are going to be presented to people representing each of these sort of areas of London and of Surrey and Middlesex to try and root out any of the rumours or knowledge that's floating around about how this robbery happened and how to get the stuff back. So the king hopes that people will start to learn about this. And I suppose it would have spread eastwards to London, as it was at the time as well, yes. wasn't it, this news? Uh, very quickly. Yes. And it's actually, I, you know, I have to say, it works quite well because yeah. they, to cut to the end of the song, they do get quite a lot of information and they get quite a lot of information that they weren't expecting. And one of those bits of information they get that they weren't expecting is that this wasn't the only burglary that people thought had taken place yeah. there. In fact, quite a lot of people in London seem to have either known something or seem to have been happy to say that they knew something, even if it wasn't true. And so actually the file in the National Archives, which still survives, as all these documents are, are, are sewn together, actually can make some fairly hilarious reading nowadays <laughs> because you get basically, to use the criminal language, the grasses of every yes. single ward in London are dishing the dirt on anyone they possibly can. And it's very interesting what comes out because a lot of different stories. But there are a few things that do seem to be quite common, you know, in them. And a certain number of names just keep coming up over and over again. And John of Joxford is our chief investigator, effectively. Is that right? Uh, well, he's one of them. One yes, of them. Yes, he is. Okay. Uh, now, it, it, it doesn't all fall to him. No. But yeah, I mean, he is responsible for the wardrobe. So, okay. you know, if the stuff comes back, he's going to have to look after yes. it. And to some extent, he might be regarded actually as being a bit suspect himself, or at least maybe negligent in his job, because it's his job to look after stuff. So he has a very vested interest in finding out stuff. But other than that, you know, some of the other figures that are commissioned to do this are some very important people in London. So yeah. the constable of the Tower of London, who is one of the king's enforcers, in you know London is is actually has always been a quite a city that's 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 had a fairly high sense of its own independence and importance and the royal authority in London often you know it came and went but often it was quite bad but the one thing that was constant was that the constable of the Tower of London would be a very strong royal supporter so he's involved the mayor of London is involved the justice here of England is involved and the prior of Westminster is also involved so these are very important people Interesting. And how did this group of people set about finding the guilty, Sally? As Jeremy said, there's there's this sort of whole panel of people, but there are sort of four main justices. So the Constable of the Tower of London is also a judge, and he's one of them. And so they arrive at, say, the Guildhall is one of the places they go to. And on a set day, those jurors from particular wards of the City of London have to come and answer those questions that I read out, the questions set by the king. You know, who did the robbery? Who knew about it? Who helped? Where is the stuff now? And so we have records of the answers that were given. And some of the juries, a couple of the juries just said, we don't know anything about it. And as Jeremy said, lots of other juries 
have lots of interesting things to say about who they think is involved and what they've heard about it. And some name names and other people will say, oh, it was, you know, a goldsmith or it was a carpenter or it was this type of person, but I don't know who it was. So you get lots of sort of overlapping testimony that starts pointing towards particular individuals. Nice. But the other thing that's happening around this time, and I, I, I don't think we understand it precisely, is some of the stuff that's been stolen mm. is starting to yeah. creep out. Basically, the, whoever's involved in the, in the robbery has got to get rid of it. They've got to fence it somehow. Yeah. And it seems that they don't do this in a terribly subtle way. <laughs> now, you know, some of these materials, as I've said, it's so disgustingly expensive that it will make a stir when it suddenly appears. The goldsmiths of London will notice, you know, <laughs> when suddenly things are around. And it seems that it also it spreads a bit outside London because yeah. I think there's a letter patent from some of the authorities in King's Lynn, which is a port in, in Norfolk, where they suddenly say, hang on, this, this, what's all this strange gold doing coming around here? That people had tried rather ineptly to pass this off, you know, in, in different parts of parts of England. So I think, you know, to cut to the end of the, of the story, actually, some of the things did get recognised and, and actually were returned. Yes, certainly it's seen as deeply suspicious that someone turns up in, in King's Lynn with gold coins, very nice florins, which they're trying to sell for much, much less than they're worth. And that's what kind of kicks off an investigation there. And also we have, in terms of stuff turning up, apart from the jury's mentioned things, like for instance, unwittingly, they say, William Torrell, who is a goldsmith who's better known for the effigies, the tomb effigies in Westminster Abbey, he was said to have bought two rings that had been stolen from Westminster Abbey. So there's all this stuff going on. And also in terms of things turning up and knowledge of it in London, there's an undated proclamation in London, probably from some point in the summer. So after June, July, something around then, when John of Droxford has turned up and made the inspection of the Treasury, which basically gives everyone a week to get themselves to the Guildhall with anything they have that they know is stolen property or with any information that they have about who's bought or sold things and, as Jeremy was saying, who are the fences. And that's in addition to these kind of formal inquiries with these grand juries, if you like, set up for all the different areas to give whatever information they have. So a fairly fast-moving investigation then by the sounds yeah. of things. I think that's right. And as I said, a number of names come up repeatedly in the returns of the different wards. And one name above all, a glorious <laughs> name, Richard Pudlicott. Pudlicott is a, a place in Oxfordshire. And we don't know vast amounts about Richard Pudlicott. He seems to fall into the capacity of a discontented gentleman. And one of the things that's sort of said about him is that actually he had suffered financial losses, actually, which he regarded as being Edward I's mm. fault and, you know, may have borne something of a grudge about it. He may just have actually you know, really liked the idea of money. Anyway, Richard Pudlicott is one of the people who's, who's named lots of times. So it's a real important thing for them to try to get hold of Richard Pudlicott, which they do. They, In fact, Richard Pudlicott, I think, had taken refuge in a church that doesn't exist anymore on Candlewick Street, which is the modern Cannon Street. And you know, he should have had sanctuary, but no, the royal officials mm -hmm. 
strong arm in there they drag him out so he is their prisoner and he talks he gives a very long and rambling confession which is actually one of the most entertaining sorry i shouldn't <laughs> laugh about it but it is one of the most entertaining bits of the whole file in there and i'll just read out a couple of excerpts from richard pudlicott's confession his description of the actual robbery of the jewels itself goes like this. Eight days before Christmas, he came there to break in with tools acquired for the job, namely two chisels, large and small, a knife and some smaller iron engines. And he worked at night until a fortnight after Easter. So we're talking, you know, four months or something. And on the night of Wednesday, the eve of St. Mark, he got into the treasury, stayed inside through St. Mark's Day, sorting out the things he wanted to carry off. And on the following night, he got out, leaving part of the treasure under a bush to recover it the next night. The rest he carried away with him, getting away through a gate behind St. Margaret's Church. The gate behind St. Margaret's Church, I should say, is actually leading back into the Palace of Westminster. And this actually turns out to be quite significant in a minute. But there we go. And the stuff about the bush is particularly brilliant that the um, Richard, maybe he didn't do this himself. He may have had an accomplice called John de Lenton. And one of the versions of the story they had is that John de Lenton had sown hemp seed along one side of the monk's cemetery, and it had grown up into a very thick bush, which basically Richard Pudlicott could then go and hide behind and cut his way in through the very thick stone wall, taking stones out, and no one could actually see him going. Now, I mean, you know, that's, that's fairly amateurish, but pretty hilarious. And you do have to wonder, you know, there he is chiseling away every single night for four months. The monks of Westminster are asleep in the dormitory immediately above his head and no one hears any noise and wants to mm. come out. I just drop that idea in there for you to think about it. But this idea about Richard cutting in through the wall, it does have a rather interesting postscript from just a few years ago. Now, the Pix Chamber, as I say, is managed by English Heritage, but that's the inside of the building. And the outside, the outer face of the wall, is actually now inside part of Westminster School. There's actually a building built against the medieval building in there. And I think this is probably about seven or eight years ago. I got a phone call from a couple of friends, including the archaeologist of Westminster Abbey and another archaeologist called Tim Tatton Brown. And they were in this bit of Westminster School doing some building recording because the school had briefly vacated the hall where it was. And so this was an opportunity for some people to actually make some notes and to make some drawings of the outer face of the wall of the Pix Chamber, which is, a you know, it's an 11th century building. It's amazing. And they said, come over here and have a look. And what we found, what Tim particularly was the person who identified this, is that you can see in the stonework where the line of the ground would have been. And then in one point, just underneath a window, it suddenly sort of ducks down and there's a whole load of rough stone in there. And then, and then the smooth stone starts again. And he said, someone's blocked up a hole <laughs> at this point. And we thought, wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, they, they clearly sort of dug down a bit, made a hole, and then someone had come along afterwards and, and filled it in. We could not think of any reason why you would want to do that. It is entirely possible that what we might be looking at is a hole made by Richard Pudlicott, possibly with help, that later on had actually been blocked up in order to make the wall good. Well, that's great. You can actually link him to the crime, potentially. Well, you know what? Well, there'll always be an element of doubt about it. But 
I did think this is truly fantastic. It's really wonderful. And with permission, I used it in a conference uh, a few years afterwards and everyone was really pleased. So I think it sort of falls into the category of it may be rubbish, but actually it's a rubbish that everyone wants to believe. And I certainly want to believe it. And anyone else involved? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, Pudlicott is the first to be arrested. But in total, there are plenty of people named, but about 80 people in total end up in the Tower of London. And various people are also imprisoned and held on remand, in effect, at Newgate and also in the gatehouse at Westminster itself. So there are people being arrested and held all over the place. And in terms of what Jeremy was saying is, okay, if Richard Pudlicott starts before Christmas and all the way through Easter, he goes into Westminster Abbey's cemetery at night to dig a big hole through an incredibly thick wall just underneath where the monks are sleeping how did nobody notice? And particularly when there are night watchmen and also the monks get up at various points in the night to pray and things like that. It sort of kind of stretches belief. And also there were other strange things that that happened. For instance, this area, although it was a cemetery, it was also the Church of St. Margaret and the current Church of St. Margaret is just by Westminster Abbey, had leased out or allowed access to that land for a local butcher to graze his sheep. And this guy was told, no, no, this is rescinded. You can't graze your sheep there anymore. And there's sort of strange goings on like this, people not being allowed into this kind of openish area around the cemetery for various reasons that don't quite add up. And so you have a lot of people who were brought in. There seem to be kind of three main groups. There's kind of Richard Pudlicutt and various people he's been hanging out with, for instance, William of the Palace, as he's called, who's the acting keeper at Westminster Palace. And he's the one who's really, I suppose, using those buildings in ways that the king would not be happy about and sort mm-hmm. of organising parties in the palace, but also involving the monks of Westminster, it seems. There's also the monks of Westminster and the whole community, so the abbot and 48 monks plus their servants, were all taken to the Tower of London and held. And they object to this. They appeal to the king and say, we're being held unjustly. And so there's another commission, a sort of smaller commission set up to see, well, are they being held unfairly or not? And so only 10 of them are kept for longer in there. And then there seem to be sort of various people who are named who, as, as Jeremy was saying, how do you get rid of all this stuff? Who are the fences? Who are the people who are helping transport it out of the abbey? So Richard Pudlicott makes this quite extraordinary confession that's kind of, it was me, Gov, and it was only me, and I did it totally on my own. Whereas the, all the sort of other evidence from the inquiry, from the juries, and from the, all the people who are arrested and suspected is that there's actually quite a large network of people involved at different stages, whether that's knowingly allowing this to go on or being part of the robbery or helping with transporting stolen goods or helping with disposing of stolen goods. I think a good parallel to make, and uh, you know, it's, it, there was a drama about it in the past year, is like the Brinks-Matt robbery in the 1980s. And how do you get rid of that amount of gold, or in this case, that amount of silver and gold? There's got to be a huge number of people involved. 
and also on the on the issue of bushes i mean there just seems to have been so much stuff that was taken out and things are being found like behind the tombstones of the church of st margaret which as i says just near westminster abbey a boy finds stuff in a bush in kentish town fishermen in the thames are dredging things up in their nets Things are sort of stashed all over the place. And it seems that they're also, from various points of view of the kind of bits of testimony from different people, that kind of things are taken out of the treasury and then hidden in a bush or hidden somewhere nearby or hidden wherever and then moved on. And so, again, this idea of a network of people who are helping this happen. But it is very funny because, I mean, everyone seems to be staggeringly casual. Yes. The, the thieves seem to be incredibly casual that they will leave this stuff under a bush and really? come back for it later and it will still be there, yes. which it actually is. But also the keeper of the Palace of Westminster, who is having these wild parties in there and plainly keeps open house for anyone who comes in who looks like, you know, they'll be, you know, able to have a good time. <laughs> they'll they'll, be, they'll be, be very, very jolly about all of it. And I mean, as you say, Richard puts his hand up and rather hilariously, he doesn't just put his hand up for this. He actually explains that he knew his way around the interior of the Abbey and where the treasury was because he'd already <laughs> carried out another robbery there. Apparently, I'll just read that one out. If I right. <laughs> on the evening following the day the king left Westminster for Barnes, the said Richard had noticed a ladder on a house being roofed near the gate from the palace to the Abbey. He placed this ladder against a window of the chapter house, which opened and shut with a cord. Using this cord, he opened the window. From there, he went to the refectory door, that's part of the abbey complex, which he found locked, but he opened it with his knife and went inside. He found six hanapers, that is big hampers, in a cupboard behind the door. In another cupboard, more than 30 silver dishes. Under a bench, hanapers of drinking cups all gathered up. He took all these away with him, shut the door behind him, but left it unlocked. And that's how he knew the layout of the abbey, where the treasury was and how he could get in. Well, he's done pretty well there, hasn't he? So what <laughs> what happened to Richard Pudlicott and the 80-plus people who were being held? Yeah, different things happened to all of them, but Richard Pudlicott does not die of old age. Oh. It may not surprise you to know. Richard Pudlicott is hanged, and he isn't the only one. How many others were given a public execution like that? I think there are another five yes. who are hanged, if I understand. We don't actually know the names of all of them. No. But they are all laymen, so none of the monks end up being killed or, or having punishment. I mean, it's very weird. So they're all carted off to the Tower of London. As I said, they object to this. Then only 10 of them are kept there. And then when the king comes back to London, he frees them. And Adam the sacristan, he's one of the kind of officers within the community of the monks and he's in charge of the sacristy which gives him access to the abbey treasures so he should be someone who's trustworthy he's one of the people who's very much named over and over again by the juries and a nice little detail talking about you know these unseemly parties is that he's supposed to have given a stolen ring from the heist to a woman who is named so that she would be his friend oh. and um so although the justices don't punish him or get justice from him they do actually name him publicly and i mean there's also the question of how different people are, are treated for the same crime and so whether you're a lay person or whether you're a member of the clergy means that you're treated differently under justice at this time. It's quite interesting that the testimony of various wards in London, the jurors, some of them reveal a 
deep hostility to monks, a real yes. suspicion about them. The jurors of Walbrook towards Ludgate are particularly hostile, and their testimony's got a very good bit. Moreover, the jurors have a great suspicion against the aforesaid monks, because four years ago, this same treasury was broken into from inside their cloister, namely under the door of the said treasury towards the cloister. But this has been hushed up, apparently, yeah. according to, to them. So it's just the, you know, oh, monks, you can't trust the monks. And um, I mean, another sort of rather nice sort of postscript to all of this is that on the English Heritage website, in the bit of, under the chapter house, you will be able to see a reproduction by courtesy of the British Library of this rather brilliant cartoon that actually was made in the early 14th century. And it shows Richard Pudlicott looting the treasury you know, <laughs> underneath a vaulted ceiling. And he's very definitely on his own. There's no yes. one else sort of helping him. There is Richard doing it. Now, the author and the, the person who drew this cartoon was a Benedictine monk of, of Rochester Cathedral Priory. And I wonder whether, you know, the Benedictines were trying to rally behind their brethren and say, look, this was a lone thief from outside our community. We had nothing to do with it, Gov. So, you know, mm. here is this picture of, of the wrongen Richard Pudlicott on his own. Absolutely. We should probably explain to our transatlantic listeners and anyone else who doesn't understand that when you say gov, that's basically relating to governor, isn't it? Yes. Sally and I are both using the, <laughs> using the vernacular of bad police dramas exactly. of the 1970s and 1980s. So I, I don't know, maybe this will appeal to people of a certain age. It's, yes. It's, it's something that in those kind of programmes, criminals, when apprehended by the long arm of the law, will say, <laughs> it's a fair cop, fair cop. gov. You've got me back. Nicked, right. You've yeah. nicked me. I've done it. <laughs> so um, that's kind of the story covered, really. But was all the treasure recovered? Quite a bit of it, but it's hard to judge quite how much. I mean, in terms of, as I said, they're sort of finding things under bushes and strange things like that. But there are also, in terms of Richard Pudlicott acted alone, I mean, they actually find stolen goods that they know are from the treasury in the possession of... Adam the sacristan, the person I just mentioned, and his servants, and also in the possession of this William of the Palace guy who's in charge of the palace and holding the parties, and also with some of the other monks and some of their servants, as well as finding things all over the place and in the hands of people who, who seem to specialise in selling dodgy goods off the back of a lorry, another colloquialism and if we were to take any lessons from this burglary, what do you think they would have been for those investigators afterwards, Jeremy? Well, I don't think there are any huge lessons learned because the aftermath of this is in some ways is entirely expected. In other ways, it isn't. OK, yes, some people, the guilty, get identified and they get executed. The other thing that Edward I had instructed was that responsible people were to take the treasury and secure it. And so what happens immediately is that they empty mm -hmm. the treasury of all the stuff that had been left behind and it's taken to the Tower of London which, for, for security. And we've got quite a lot of documentation about this. We actually know that it was put inside one of the turrets around the inner curtain wall that's quite close to the chapel. And they had a, a pretty disciplined system of dual key. You know, someone had the key to the door of the treasury room, but only someone else had the key that got into each of the chests you know, within that that space. And that, you know, that all makes sense. And in a sense, you'd think, okay, that's that's perfectly straightforward. The Tower of London is a very good place for the treasure to be kept. 
Unfortunately, that couldn't be a long-term solution. The Tower of London is a very busy fortress. Mm. There's lots of prisoners there. There's lots of weapons of war. There's acute pressures on space. So actually what they do, and probably within you know a few years of the robbery, is they just secure the Pix chamber again. And that's brought back into use. The treasure is put back in there. And in fact, when you go to the Pix chamber now, there's very obvious evidence for the aftermath in that they actually put in two doors that you have to get in through to enter the Pix chamber from the cloister. And they're always open, you know, now. But it's, you know, it's two solid skins of doors. You would find it very, very hard to break in. And we have descriptions from the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries of treasure still being kept in this space. And it wasn't, as far as we know, wasn't successfully burgled again. So they had done quite well. There's just one beautiful urban myth um, (laughs) about all of this, which is about the door to the Pix chamber. It's actually the previous, the early door. It was always said that part of the punishment of Richard Pudlicott was that as well as being hanged, he was actually flayed. His skin was taken off his body and was nailed to the outside of the door as a warning of what will happen to you if you ever try to do such things. I have to say that the door itself has been examined many times. And I think as early as the 19th century, people that had looked at this said, yeah, it's the skin of a cow. It's Mm. leather that's put on the front of the door. There's nothing human about it. But nevertheless, that's a memorable story that's never going to go away. Finally, if people want to see where this crime happened for themselves, how do they visit the sites, Jeremy? Well, as I say, I mean, I would advise anyone to go to Westminster Abbey because it's absolutely fab. But what I would also say is that, yes, through strange historical reasons, English Heritage is responsible for the management of the Chapter House and the Picts Chamber. So while, sadly, it's not possible to go and visit one of the Treasury Rooms, the one underneath the Chapter House itself, which is actually a vestry that Westminster Abbey's clergy occasionally use in there. So you have to have very special permission to go and see that. But a day visitor can say, you know, present themselves with English heritage identification at the door that goes into the cloister. So that's off Dean's Yard, just to one side of the Abbey Church. And the vergers will direct you where you have to go. And you can go in and see the Pix Chamber. And I would strongly recommend it because it's an absolutely beautiful medieval space. And there are a couple of wooden chests in there, sadly, not old enough to have been there in 1303. But you do get some sense of the space in which, in which the robbery was carried out. And you can imagine Richard Pudlicott, by candlelight, I expect, possibly with an accomplice, working through the night. A fantastic story, and uh, thank you both for your time in explaining it to us. It's been a really interesting story. Oh, thanks very much. It's it's always been a bit of a favourite, this one. So, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully we can do more true crime on the English Heritage podcast in future. I think I can speak with authority that this is not the only crime that's ever been committed <laughs> at an English heritage property. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're putting your questions to our experts about one of the biggest turning points in English history. There's a monk at Canterbury, and he actually says French people in his day who were at the battle still talk about how close it was, and that ultimately it was the miraculous intervention of God which granted victory to William. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>